Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Who is it? Messenger service. March, we're gonna play a game. I think you have the wrong house. It's called Shut Up Unless You're Me. I love that game. You're a private investigator? Just 20 bucks in there, all right? Just take it. No, I told you. I'm not here for that. My messenger. Give me your left arm. No! Yeah, come on. No. When you're talking to your doctor, no. you tell him you have a spiral fracture. No! Deep breath. No. I'm not in the yellow pages. If you got trouble with someone, you might ask around for me, Jackson Healy. I work for the Department of Justice. My daughter, Amelia, is in danger. Please find her, protect her. March, Jack Ely. I'm not here to hurt you, so I'm gonna ask you a question. No. How stupid do you think I am? I got a license to carry, dumbass. And ever since your little visit, this little baby's gonna stay right here. Don't move. There's a couple of people I trust say you're pretty good at this. I want you to find Amelia. You're the guy who beat up my dad. Sucker punched your dad. Seen this girl? She's got dark hair. Name's Amelia. Who's in it for me? He'll stop doing it. He'll what? Dad? The mob is trying to spread its operation to Los Angeles. Somehow, Amelia is involved. One thing we know for sure, something funny's going on. Oh, this just keeps getting better and better. You're the world's worst detective. The world's worst. Look at the bright side. Nobody got hurt. People got hurt. I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Nice Guys from 2016. The studio was Warner Brothers, release date May 20th, 2016, with a running time of 116 minutes. The rating is R, the budget was $50 million, and the box office took in $36 million that was domestic roast, making it the 79th ranked movie of 2016. Now it took in an extra $26 million internationally. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 92% fresh from 310 reviews. Their critics' consensus is, The Nice Guys harkens back to the buddy comedies of a bygone era while adding something extra, courtesy of a knowing script and the irresistible chemistry of its leads. Mick LaSalle from the San Francisco Chronicle gave it 4 out of 5 stars, and if you know anything about what used to be the pink section in the San Francisco Chronicle, they used to have different... Uh, rating systems where it was f- technically five stars, but it would have this little caricature of uh, this little man. And so uh, for four out of five, it's this little man clapping in his chair. Now, if it was five out of five stars, he's standing on the chair, like clapping very enthusiastically. Uh, if he's sitting up, then that's three out of five stars. If he's sleeping, that's two. And then if it, he, I think if if it's empty, it's either a bomb or one star. So that used to be a fun thing for those in the Bay Area. Anyway, this is Mick DeSalle's review for The Nice Guys. It's rare to see a movie that has the power to surprise. And surprise and surprise. The surprises in The Nice Guys aren't the surprises of the story. Though the story is varied enough to be unpredictable. The surprises, rather, have to do with the unexpected lines or sight gags topped by other lines and sight gags. They have to do with radical, expertly executed shifts in tone. For these reasons, The Nice Guy is a hard movie to describe. The performances are good, better than good, but this is not a movie about performances. Audiences will walk out of the film pleased, but not transform. It's not a great movie. An action comedy, it doesn't have a great movie's half-life, and it doesn't produce the great movie glow. But its constant invention and originality are indeed great. 
and so is the pleasure they produce. It's a movie unlike any other. Besides Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from 2005 from the same writer-director Shane Black, along with co-writer Anthony Bargdazzi, Black creates in the nice guys an atmosphere that allows for farce, slapstick, silly wordplay, and genuine and weirdly effective sentiment. And this is something you might not realize until it's over. You won't have time to realize it. There's no dead time, no scenes that are merely functional. there to set up other scenes. Every scene is enjoyable, containing its own little kick or twist, and everything is always rushing forward. As a filmmaker, Black is immersed in the Los Angeles film noir tradition, and he knows how to play off expectations. He knows the conventions he has to deliver on and the ones he can upend, and he seems to have a second-by-second understanding of an audience's thinking. As with some of the famous noir films of the 1940s, most notably The Big Sleep, the plot of The Nice Guys isn't important. The only thing important about it is that it seems important in the moment. The film is set in 1977. It captures the 1970s milieu. Not just the cars and the clothes, but with a story that involves a series of murders within the fringes of the porn industry. As in most Los Angeles noir, the story's range is big enough to incorporate low life and high life and to suggest that the two are closer than people think. But the expectation of the nice guys is mostly that of shocked laughter. It's a bombardment of audacity and outrageous humor that never lets up. Ryan Gosling is the comic, mostly but not always the idiot, and Russell Crowe is the straight man, and the two work well enough together that a sequel seems inevitable. Black's first screenplay was for Lethal Weapon, which became a franchise. And Ngori Rice, who plays Gosling's intelligent and highly moral 12-year-old daughter, deserves a special mention. The character is an unexpected presence that adds dimension to the story, and Rice plays her beautifully. And that's the end of Mick LaSalle's review. Now, this is the newest film I've covered as a full episode. However, as you heard from Mick LaSalle's review, the film does play, take place in the 1970s. So, what is old is new again and fits the type of movie this, that I dig. And this was a rental, and I immediately loved it because it took chances, mostly in the dialogue, that newer movies want to avoid. And I'll get into that later. All right, let's get into the main cast. You have Russell Crowe, who plays Jackson Healy. Crowe, of course, had a terrific career by 2016, and he continues to be great in all the films he appears in. His acting career started on television and film in Australia in the late 1980s. His breakout role in the U.S. was the terrific neo-noir L.A. Confidential from 1997. Though he did co-star with Denzel Washington in Virtuosity in 1995. But after L.A. Confidential, Crow's fame just continued to rise. Because then he was in Gladiator, A Beautiful Mind, Cinderella Man, American Gangster, and the 2012 adaptation of Les Miserables. Ryan Gosling plays Holland March. Gosling started as a teen actor in the mid-1990s on TV shows. His breakout film role came in 2004 with The Notebook with Rachel McAdams. He continued to receive acclaim in independent films like Blue Valentine with Michelle Williams and Drive from 2011. He then would star in the breakout musical La La Land with Emma Stone in 2016 and then the sequel to Blade Runner in 2017. The director, Shane Black, he began as a screenwriter and his first film started with a bang, as Mick LaSalle mentioned, in 1987 with Lethal Weapon. And he would go on to write all four Lethal Weapon films, along with The Monster Squad, which I love and eventually will cover. He also wrote The Last Boy Scout with Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans, and Last Action Hero with Arnold Schwarzenegger. His directorial debut was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with Robert Downey Jr. in 2005, and then he would go on to direct Iron Man 3 in 2013. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. Shane Black wrote a script in 1986 called The Shadow Warriors, and people loved that script, but nobody actually wanted to make the movie. This is when producer Joel Silver first met Shane Black. Black then wrote Lethal Weapon, and his career started to take off. Silver loved how Black would write action films laced with humor. They connected again in the early 2000s with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and around this time... Black also wrote the first script of The Nice Guys with Anthony Bagarosi. Shane Black loves detective stories, especially the classic hard-boiled detectives like those written by Brett Halliday. Both Black and Bagarosi loved the pulp novels written in the 1970s and decided that instead of writing a modern-day script inspired by the 70s, they would simply make the period in the 1970s like they did with The Nice Guys. At first, they wrote three different plots for the two main characters to solve and pitch the script as a potential TV series, but the TV studios weren't interested. But in 2009, Joel Silver agreed to turn the script into a feature film. 
Black and Bagger Rosie loved the hired muscle villains from the 1970s, and that's what they went in with with the nice guys. Black also loves action taking place when guys are dressed in suits, which is also very 70s. It's also nice to see a film that isn't so reliant on technology. It gives more creativity to solving crimes, as opposed to simply doing a search on your phone or texting, hey, go go arrest this guy. <laughs> What's unique about the film is that you have the writer of the film also be the director, kind of what Albert Brooks always does. There's a certain closeness to this dynamic which makes the film truly his. Okay, let's get into the film. So it's nice to see the old school red background Warner Brothers logo for the start of the film. This totally reminds me of renting VHS movies in the 1980s. And it was shown before their films from 1972 to 1984. Also, we get the classic song Papa Was a Rolling Stone by The Temptations playing while we see a panoramic view of Los Angeles. And again, the setting is 1977. We see a teenage boy sneak into his parents' bedroom while they were sleeping one night, and he grabs a nudie magazine from under their bed. The boy looks at the new centerfold of a model named Misty Mountains. And in a not-so-subtle way of foreshadowing the upcoming events, we see the background of the kitchen window, the hills, and the cliffs of a road above the house. All of a sudden, a car comes crashing down the hill and through the house of the kid. The boy goes to investigate the car, which is now down the hill a bit. And it's none other than the porn star of Misty Mountains, and her car is smashed, and Misty is lying half dead, posed exactly like her centerfold that the boy was looking at. She says a few words to the boy before dying. We then cut to Jackson Healy, that's Russell Crowe. He's a tough guy enforcer hired off the books to get things done that traditional law enforcement can't and won't do. For example, he sees an underage girl getting picked up by a small-time drug dealer and taking her back to his place to smoke some pot. Nothing else happens, but Jackson waits for the girl to leave the house before he beats the shit out of the drug dealer. We then go to Holland March, played by Ryan Gosling, who is sitting in his bathtub watching television while still fully dressed in his suit. Holland is a down-on-his-luck private investigator. He has a teenage daughter who has to call him to remind him that it's her birthday. We then get an eerily similar and amusing scene of Holland waiting in long lines for gas, as this was the era where there was a gasoline shortage and you could only get fuel for your car on specific days based on the number of your license plate. It's almost like the toilet paper crisis of 2020. Anyway, Holland isn't getting the type of high-profile clients he would like. It's my husband. Fred's his name. Fred. He's gone missing. Missing? I'm terribly worried. It's just Fred's never been gone this long before. How long has he been missing? Since the funeral. Well, I can start right away. Another case Holland is working on is to find Misty Mountains, as her aunt hired Holland to find her. Jackson, on the other hand, is hired by a woman named Amelia, played by Margaret Qualley to send a message to a guy that is following her. You might see where this is headed. Now, Holland is sort of a bumbling idiot. He's not a badass private eye portrayed in other films. For example, he tries to break into a bar after hours in order to obtain some information. He wraps his hand with a handkerchief and then attempts to punch open the back door, which is glass-plated. He punches the door just fine and in the process, slashes open a major artery in his wrist, which is bleeding profusely and has to be rushed to the hospital, in an ambulance. The next morning, Jackson goes to visit the guy that Amelia hired him to rough up. And guess who that guy is? Who is it? Messenger service. Hall March home? What the fuck? Mr. March, we're gonna play a game. I had to give the wrong house. It's called Shut Up Unless You're Me. I love that game. You're a private investigator? Look, there's 20 bucks in there, all right? Just take it. No, I'm not here for that. I told you. I'm a messenger. You can afford to live like this as a PI? What's the message? Oh, right, right. Stop looking for Amelia. Right? I'm not even looking for Amelia. She's a person of interest, man. I'm fine. I'm done. Put a fork in me. Don't really put a fork in me. Amelia's gonna be very happy that you got the message so quickly. It's gonna make her smile. That's good. Now, 
I got one more thing I need to ask you before we're done here. You and an old hired me. Bingo. Yeah. So we can do this the easy way, we can do it the Glenn. hard way. Glenn. What? Lily Glenn. Two ends. Old lady hired me to find her niece on Tuesday. You just gave up your plan. I made a discretionary revelation. No, no, you just gave her up. I asked you one simple question. Ba -ba 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 -ba. You gave me all the information. I thought that's what you wanted. What? Very sorry that you didn't get the message. Me too. But I get it now. <clears throat> I get it. I dig it. What about now? You get the message now? Yep. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm cool. All right. Give me your left arm. Huh? Your left arm. Give me your left arm. This one. No! Yeah, come on. No! No! Did you cut yourself? I'm dealing with an injury. Right, look, when you're talking to your doctor, just tell him you have a spiral fracture of the left radius. No! No! Deep breath. No! You mind if I have an apple? Ah! All right, Mr. March, you have a good day, okay? Hi. Hey. Want a you who? A you who? Are you kidding? Oh, yeah. You know, I haven't had one of these in about 30 years. You a friend of my dad's? Yeah. Yeah, but business associates. He's inside resting. Didn't I see you crawling around a vacant lot a couple of blocks over? Um, maybe. I read there sometimes. Right. It's me, he, for you, who. Thanks again. Bye. So that was Holland's daughter, Holly, played by Angori Rice, that Jackson runs into at the end of the last clip. Holland tries to tell Misty's aunt that he can no longer look for Misty, but she just won't take no for an answer and offers him more money, which, of course, Holland can't refuse. Across town, Jackson is met by two men, Bo Knapp and the always awesome Keith David, one of my favorite actors, who rough up Jackson because they are looking for Amelia. This is a funny scene as Bo attempts to open a package, which Jackson tells him not to open, and then this happens. I'm going to ask you again. Where is Amelia? I would like to help you, but I just don't know anybody called Amelia. Oh, okay. You don't talk. I'm going to have to start breaking your fingers. You understand? Yes, I understand. Hey, how's that? Come on in here. I found something hidden in the cabinet. Really? <laughs> Watch him. Oh, no, hey, don't. Oh, don't. Don't open that because that's not mine. It belongs to a friend. I just thought uh, I'd look after it for him, but it's one of those bags. If you try to open it. Oh, oh, what? Shit. What? Motherfucker! Motherfucker! I can't see him! Oh, God! What the fuck? Hey, you know that color doesn't come off, right? <clears throat> I tried to tell you. You tried to tell me. <laughs> Fuck you! Hey, hey, oh, oh no! Hey, not the fish! Come on! Hey, can you ask this guy to behave like a professional? You know, kid, when I get that gun off you, it's gonna be your dinner. Dinner. <laughs> This fucking guy, you're funny. You're funny. Don't, don't. Oh, come on, fish. You want some fucking dinner? You want some dinner? Why are you doing this? This is not gonna help you. There you go. No, come on. You're gonna eat that thing, you fucking fuck! Look, you gotta, you gotta stop and think about this. All right? When you came here tonight, was this what you wanted to happen? When you came here to uh, make me eat fish? To shoot me? Look, if you come in here, you beat up on me, you trash the place. I understand, I get it, it's part of the job, I accept it, all right? But what did you do? You did something different from that, didn't you? Right? You pissed me off. You made an enemy. Now, even if I knew something, I wouldn't tell you, kid. And you know why I wouldn't tell you? And this is, it's not my only reason, but it is a principal reason. You know, I wouldn't tell you, because you're a fucking moron. Man, <laughs> 
for the rest of the film, the guy who had the tie pack explode in his face is now named Blueface. <laughs> in the meantime, Holland throws a birthday party for his daughter at a bowling alley with her friends, and he is paid a visit by Jackson. This time in the bowling alley bathroom. March, Jack Ely. Don't get upset. I'm not here to hurt you. I just want to ask you a question. Hey, no. How stupid do you think I am? I got a license to carry, motherfucker. Ever since your little visit the other day, this little baby's gonna stay right here. Look away. You know there's a mirror here, right? Close your eyes. Forget it. You know what? Turn around. Can I open my eyes? Yeah, open your eyes. What do you want? I want you to find Amelia. Jesus. What are you doing here? Giving you a rim job. What? Rim shot? Rim shot. Whatever. Hey, can we go one more game before? You're the guy who beat up my dad. Hey, no. Sucker punched your dad. Big difference. But don't worry. He just did it for money. <laughs> you beat people up and charge money? Yeah. Sad, isn't it? That's really your job? Yeah. No way. Yeah. So, um, how much would you charge to beat up my friend Janet? What? How much you got? 30 bucks. Oh, 30 bucks. Apple pie. Is she a big girl? She's tall. All right, Super annoying. Apple pie. She's always mean to me. Just eat, that's good. This conversation no is over. We're just talking. And it's over. So Jackson did some digging on Holland and discovers that he's not a bad P.I., so he hires Holland to also find Amelia. Holland is very skeptical about Jackson since he already broke his wrist, but of course he goes along with it because he needs the money, and it's a movie. Holland believes there is some sort of connection between the death of Misty Mountains and Amelia. Misty's aunt believes that she saw her alive, though Holland doesn't think so. He thinks it's possible that Misty's aunt really saw Amelia and thought it was Misty. Now, there's a hilarious scene where Jackson and Holland go looking for Amelia at a protest against pollution. The group is laying on the steps of some government building, claiming they're dead, while Holland continues to yell out for Amelia. Eventually, one of the dead protesters agrees to help them for 20 bucks. The guy takes them to a house that was recently burned down and claims it was Amelia's boyfriend's, who was a filmmaker named Dean. Kid. Uh, what? You know the guy who lived here? Maybe. What's it to you? Hey, he'll give you $20 if you answer. I didn't say that. 20 bucks, man. Or you can blow. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. I knew the dude. Filmmaker dude. Saw him making a film last month. Experimental films, right? I guess. More like a nudie film. Did you see a girl about 5'8", dark hair, named Amelia? Nope. Saw that famous chick. What famous chick? Dead one, porn star, Misty something. You saw Misty Mountains here? Yeah. Talked to the producer at... No, his name was Sid... Sid Hatrack. Yeah. Nobody's name is Hatrack. Whatever. Tried to get a job. I offered to show my dick, because I got a big dick. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's very nice. Yeah. You sure you didn't see another girl? Nope. You guys want to see my dick? Nobody <laughs> wants to see your dick, dude. 20 bucks? We already paid you 20. What am I saying? Oh, all right. Bags! Holland and Jackson decide to go to a party thrown by a porn film producer named Sid Shattuck. It's a Hollywood Hills type of house with all of the 1970s debauchery you could imagine. And like a chip off the old P.I. block, Holly decides to tag along by hiding in the trunk of her dad's car. What? Stop it! Stop it, Dad! Dad, there's like whores here and stuff. Sweetheart, how many times have I told you, don't say and stuff. Just say, Dad, there are whores here. No, there's like a ton. Wait, no, I can help you! Holland puts Holly in a cab and then heads to the party, which has Earth, Wind, and Fire performing live. Jackson and Holland split up. Holland asks around looking for Amelia, getting progressively more intoxicated, while Jackson goes into a different room looking for clues. 
Also, Holly didn't get far in the taxi and is found by Jackson at the party, also investigating. By the way, I'm supposed to meet someone here. Do you by any chance know a girl named Amelia? I think she did a film with Sid Shadow. Don't know her, but Sid's gross. He told me this one chick was his sister, right? And then a few days later, I walk in on them and they're all doing anal and stuff. Don't say and stuff. Just say they're doing anal. A very drunk Holland makes small talk with a woman dressed as Pocahontas on the patio and ends up rolling down a hill in the woodsy area. He discovers a dead body who just happens to be Sid Shattuck. This is uncredited to Robert Downey Jr., actually. It's Sid Shattuck. That's Sid Shattuck. Don't tell me that. Oh, no. Shit. What's going on? Shit. Everybody worked on this Amelia flick, right? The boyfriend, that Misty... Now, Sid, they're all dead. Before we go solving the crime of the century, let's deal with the fucking rotting corpse. What the fuck are we gonna do with this guy? We gotta get rid of him. Why? I lost my gun. There was a girl. She complaced me. All right. We got a plan. We'll throw up. We'll get rid of the body. I can't figure out how you saw him from all the way up there. You didn't fall down the fucking hill, did you? Did you fall down the hill? I had like two, three drinks, tops. Yeah, that's why you can't walk straight. Oh, excuse me, I'm carrying a dead body and I have a schwanz in my face, so I'm sorry I'm not Kishner off. You can't even say Bereznikov. You did, didn't you? You yeah. fell down a fucking hill. You get drunk, you lose your gun, you take your header off the balcony, and now you're gonna tell me it's like a, a hallowed time on a detective ploy, right? It was very slippery up there, okay? I was, I was in the pool. You were in the pool? Yeah. Why? I had to question the mermaids. What were you doing while I was working? Thank you. Let's get rid of this guy. So they dump Sid's body over a fence, which landed at another house party. In the meantime, Holly's in trouble as she is now in a limo with Mr. Blueface. And Jackson runs into Keith David, and they get into a brawl. Blueface then sees Amelia waiting for her car from the valet and attempts to shoot her, but Holly quickly slams the door on his hand and escapes. Holly and Amelia run down the road but are caught by Blueface. Holly, come see if you can flag somebody down. He's in a bad way. Mm. You. Yeah, me. Oh, you ever hear of John Boy? By now, he's heard of you. 
They're flying him in. <laughs> now he's gonna kill that private cop. And it's some fucking family. <laughs> and that he's gonna come for you. You ain't got long to live. Well, buddy. None of us do. After the police and ambulance arrive, we are then introduced to another piece of this puzzle, Judith Kuttner, Amelia's mother, who works for the Department of Justice, played by Kim Basinger. Judith is part of the crime unit, looking to prevent the mob-run porn industry from infiltrating Hollywood. So, of course, what does her daughter go and do? That's right, she stars in a porn film. First of all, I want to say thank you. We've been watching interviews, and it sounds like you might have saved my daughter's life. That was mostly Holly. His daughter. It's genetics. I need your help. I want to know if I can trust you. I'm kind of getting the idea that, you know, you might not have much choice. Well, my situation is very delicate. I... That's where I know you from, right? The TV. You're prosecuting that, that car company thing. The lawsuit for the catalytic converter, yes. That's half my day. The other half I spend on pornography. What kind? Like which films? What's your favorite? No, no. <laughs> no anti, anti-porn. Right. Like a crusader. Should I be writing this down? Yeah, write it down. The Vegas mob is trying to spread its porn operation to Hollywood Boulevard. And I'm doing everything I can to stop it. Thank you. Porn is bad. Basically, everyone involved in this porn film is being killed, and that's why Amelia is in danger. But why is this one particular film the catalyst behind the murders? Amelia thinks that Judith is behind the murders and also trying to kill her. So Judith hires Holland and Jackson to also find Amelia. (laughs) Okay, so I'm not sure how many listeners have actually seen this film, so I will stop here. There's about an hour left in the film, which will answer all of the questions about Amelia and the danger she's in. You will also learn more about the backstory of Holland and Jackson. This is one of the few newer films that really gets it right and doesn't shy away from what made noir films so great in the past. Maybe the reason the film was allowed to go to certain places was because it was shot as a period piece. In any case, this is a very well-done neo-noir film with comedic elements. And it would have been ripe for a sequel, but sadly, it didn't earn enough at the box office to warrant a sequel. Alright, some fun facts. One of the film's nods is to The Rockford Files, the TV show. And it's the Yellow Page ad for Holland March's detective agency. It's almost a complete copy of the ad used by Jim Rockford. And like Jim Rockford, Holland March keeps his gun in a cookie jar. Russell Crowe put on some extra weight for the role of Jackson Healy. He felt that the character, as an enforcer thug, should be a stocky brawler type. Russell Crowe was promoting his show The Loudest Voice on The Howard Stern Show, and he said one of the two films that he wishes there was a sequel for was The Nice Guys, the other being L.A. Confidential. Alright, we have two guests that also enjoy this film, one being Sonny Pooney from the Grown Up Rock Podcast and Podcast Rock City. He joins me, and then frequent guest and writer Bill Roseberry also talk about The Nice Guys. And I will be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. All right, we're back with Sonny Pooney from the Grown Up Rock Podcast, and of course, the Kiss Podcast, Podcast Rock City. Welcome back, Sonny. Yeah, I was going to start with, sorry, can't help you, I'm dead. (laughs) (laughs) This movie should have been a lot bigger than it was. Uh, Totally, maybe it was, I don't know, I don't know why it didn't do well, because you had two really big stars for the most part. Maybe people don't like uh, 70s movies, I don't know, maybe, uh, why don't you think this movie did better than it did? I don't know if it was marketed well because the mm. first time I saw it was Redbox. Oh, okay. And I've not seen any other Ryan Gosling movie I can think of except for Ides of March. That's the mm. only other Ryan Gosling movie I've seen. But if I would have known Russell Crowe was in a big motion picture, I would have went and saw it in the theater. Right. 
Right. And I think, uh, you know, today with with the way people are, are afraid of offending people, I think they, the way they get around it now is to go back in time. So you can get away with it if it's a 70s piece or a 60s piece or something like that. So I think a lot of what was in this film, they kind of get away with because it is supposed to take place in the 70s. I don't know if that hurt or helped them. Um, but, yeah, you would think with the star power of least Russell Crowe and, uh, you know, I, I guess this is before La La Land for Ryan Gosling. Um, but he was still a pretty, you know, up and coming actor. Yeah. And I wish that like Matt Bomer had a bigger part because mm-hmm. white collar was hot at the time. And yeah. I, I love that show. So they could, if I would have known he was in the movie, I would have went and saw it in the theater. So there's had to been something on the marketing. Yeah, I no, totally. I agree. But the story itself, like I love, you know, the old film noir from like, you know, the forties and things like that. But this is neo noir. This is a lot like, you know, Chinatown and, and films like that. And the, and the detectives, the gumshoes. So yeah. How did you, how did you feel about the plot and how did it keep you, uh, engaged? Uh, the plot. Well, uh, the way the movie starts uh, immediately keeps you engaged, right? Cause mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to admit it. I will. <laughs> I did find my dad's movie nudie magazine. <laughs> yes. They were under the bed. Yeah. I didn't have the balls to sneak in there while they were sleeping. Like that's, that's ballsy, <laughs> right? Uh, there's nothing to hate about Misty mountains. I don't know why she's laying there naked, thrown out of the car. That's a little set up. Obviously yep. nobody else woke up. A car just crashed with the car. Nobody else woke up. Like, so there was so many questions to like, I'm like, okay, wait a second. Is this supposed to be a spoof? Is this supposed to be real? They got kind of a st- serious storyline. It seems like, and then the way they, the way Russell Crowe narrates himself kind of almost feels like the end of an A team kind of thing. Yeah. So it hooked me right at the get go. So I wasn't going to let go no matter what. Well, speaking of nudie magazines, my dad wasn't shy about it. My mom actually got him a subscription to Playboy, uh, you know, when they when they were early on in their marriage. So he already had them in, like just spewed around. So I was good there. I didn't have to sneak around. So that was good. Yeah. Oh, well, that's yeah. good for you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. They listen. So, yeah, they'll be happy that I just outed them. But anyway, uh, going back to the <laughs> to the plot, you know, Shane Black, who directed this and also wrote this, he was, you know, he's best known for doing all the Lethal Weapons movies. So I, there's a little bit of Lethal Weapon there with the kind of uh, there's a partnership, even though they're they have a weird relationship between Crow and uh, Gosling. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, Crow, that voice, his voice really sells the character. Oh yeah. I, I can't imagine Mel Gibson doing that. Bruce Willis probably could have done it. Yeah. And Bruce Bill Willis has been typecast like this all the time. Right. So, um, did Crow look like he was a little bigger? I don't remember him being such a big guy. I believe he gained weight for the role. Cause that's what, that's what this was going for. He, he was kind of like that. Um, he was an enforcer. They kind of reference it. Like he was just kind right. of like one of those guys that, that do those things. So yeah, I think he did that on purpose because yeah, he can, obviously he's one of those guys like De Niro that could put on weight for a role if, if need be. Yeah. I thought he really sold a part. I have no problem with involving the big three. Like it made me actually go look up on wiki. was this a real thing. Like the catalytic converters have a, Right. Uh, issue, blah, blah. And it doesn't sound like there was one. Obviously, there's always uh, the folks that are protesting, you know, you're putting pollution in the air, blah, blah, blah. Sure. But it sounded like catalytic converters fixed more things than it hurt. Yeah. And it was interesting since it does take place in the 70s. Uh, you know, those old enough to remember, I don't. I remember it being told to me. But the uh, the gas shortage of the 70s, you know, where pe- they kind of reference that, too. Uh, you yeah. know, people waiting in line to get gas. It was like a, every other day based on your license plate, I believe. Yeah, what's interesting about movies like this is, you know, it's really kind of set up to be a comedy, obviously, right? Yeah. But it's kind of this dry humor. It's mm-hmm. a somewhat serious. So, like, scenes like where um, Gosling's handing his daughter the phone to hang up, she just drops it on the ground. Like, I, I catch that stuff and laugh like crazy. And if somebody's sitting there with you and they don't get it, they're like, what are you laughing about? I'm like, yeah, just see that. That was hilarious. Like, <laughs> so, I like it when, like, TV shows don't have a laugh track. For instance. Yeah, agreed. Right. So I thought there was a lot of those movies in this, a lot of those things in this movie. And then Gosling is almost playing like a wily e. coyote character, right? He's almost like a cartoon character that keeps getting hurt. So it's a great movie. I I love the plot. Oh, yeah. And I think the daughter is perfect in this. Like, I think she kind of steals the show in many ways and, and kind of keeps it uh, keeps the story going. I think she's incredibly important. And I don't remember seeing her in anything else. Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. And Kim Basinger looks good for 2016. Good Lord. 
Oh man, she's great. Yeah, because there really aren't that many. I mean, there's females all out, but all around. But actually, the main female is the daughter. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And she she kind of runs into the she's smart, kind of the same thing Gosling's doing. They're both smart, but they kind of sometimes do stupid things. I didn't understand the whole part about when Blue gets hit with a car. Why is the <laughs> daughter? Why is Holly so into make sure he's okay? And then I also didn't get why Crow choked him out. Like I I, I didn't get that whole thing. Yeah, I think that I, I kind of thought about that too. I think she, with the loss of her mother, um, and, and I, I think probably she just has a thing with death being so young. So I think that's probably, you know, she's maybe they also wanted to kind of add some, I don't know, goodness to this kind of sea of madness. And so there's kind of uh, something that keeps them humble. But whereas Russell Crowe, it doesn't matter. He's going to do what he has to do because that's his job. Um, the other female character, of course, is, is, uh, they're trying to find Amelia. And so Margaret Qualley, and if you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, she's one of the, the Manson gang. She, so there's the other, uh, female, I think main female person in this. I was wondering where I'd seen her before. And I just saw that movie, uh, probably a couple of months ago. God, that movie okay. was long. It is, but I loved it. I, I thought it was terrific. But, yeah, it was uh, good. Yeah. It had star power too. Tar- Tarantino movies are super long, no matter what they are. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so going back into one of my favorite actors of all time, and he's a great character, is Keith David. I wish he was more in this film um, because he's with uh, Blueface most of the time. But uh, I, yeah, I wish they used him more. He's one of those guys that's been like in a hundred things I've seen. Probably, oh yeah, like he uh, one of those. Uh, what are I don't even know if you can call it a character actor. It's like there, he, there's always some of these small parts in a TV show or a movie that he pops up in. So he's hard to pin down on. What I like about him is just he's always kind of playing the same character, though. Yeah, well, he's got an amazing voice, so he does voiceover work a lot. And, uh, you know, you think about like there's something about Mary where he plays like Mary's uh, Mary's dad, you know, like just like he pops in, he steals the show and then you don't see him again. So, yeah, he he definitely has a role in that. So, yeah, what other what other parts about this movie uh, really stood out for you and uh, how often do you go back to it? So I probably see it maybe once or twice a year on the pay channels because I still mm-hmm. have cable because I yep. love cable. Um, you know, there's <laughs> there's places when Blueface throws fish at him. Like I, <laughs> I, I'm just sitting there dying. And uh, I had my son was watching with me. He goes, I don't get it. And he's throwing fish at him. Come on. <laughs> um, I thought where, you know, the aunt was so. She was so convinced that she saw Misty in a pinstripe suit two days after she died. Usually right. I'm pretty good about creating scenarios where it could have been this, could have been this, could have been this. This scenario was unique. I would not have come up with that without the movie. And I like it that about 90 minutes in, they kind of sum up the movie for you. So if you were uh, confused about really anything, they kind of out loud talk it out. I li- I like that. I don't know if it's great for the movie because if you don't talk that stuff out, you make the I guess the watcher go see the movie two or three times to try to put the pieces together. Yeah. Um so it probably works against them. Um but the you know the whole thing about throwing the body over and it lands on a dinner party, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, Gosling falls out with the guy but he lands in the pool, the other guy lands on the sidewalk like mm-hmm. Those kinds of things, like I said, almost make it cartoony, like the whole throwing the coffee on her, but it was cold. Um, but there's this movie is worth watching over and over because you could catch it at any part of the film and it would be funny and keep it going. Yeah, and they definitely Crow and, and Gosling definitely had a rapport and they totally set it up, to, especially at the end, to to be to have sequels. I mean, this totally could have been uh, a franchise, but I, I guess it just simply didn't make enough money to, to make it worthwhile. Yeah, and who knows what enough money is, right? Right. And sometimes some of these don't come out till six or seven years afterwards, so I guess it still has time if they really wanted to go. I didn't know that was Gil Gerard. I waited till the oh. credits, and I'm like, wait a second, Buck Rogers was in this movie? I don't remember seeing him. <laughs> that's true. He was in this. Yeah, that, that's a good. That's a good call. Yeah, yeah. this is uh it's weird with the with the budget, and because I'm looking at Wikipedia now, they spent fifty million, uh, and they made back sixty two million. I'm not sure if that's counting international or not. So they made a little bit of a profit. But yeah, I mean, now it's like, you know, if they don't make, you know, a super amount of profit, it's not going to be worthwhile to put another 50 million into it. So, yeah, that's uh, unfortunate. Maybe it could come back as a as a television show. I don't know. Maybe they could do it something like that. But then they probably get other actors. And I'm not sure that would work as much. Yeah, that's true. And what will end up happening is this will end up being a cult classic as Gosling does more and more movies, as Crow mm-hmm. does more and more movies and somebody's. Go into wiki and say, well, what other stuff was the person in? 
right? Kind of like Friday became for Chris Tucker sure. kind of thing, right? Where everybody I know seen Friday, but then you talk to people like I lived in Wisconsin for two years. You're talking about Friday. Then what are you talking about? I'm like, you guys never seen the movie Friday? What's wrong? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. Regional definitely makes a difference. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but there's all sorts of movies that become cult, uh, cult classics like this, you know, whether it be Remo Williams or, you know, those kind of, kind of detective things where they think it's going to be bigger and it just doesn't. And that's okay. You you still have that one film. So, you know, it could be worse. Yeah. So my criticisms of this movie. Sure. And it came out immediately. So I, like I said, I got it red box. I put it in me and my wife are watching the movie do 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 going, going, get down on it comes on. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second, babe, hit pause. Didn't they say this movie was 1977? Mm-hmm. Was, yeah. I'm like, that song's an 80 song. That's not a 77 song. <laughs> so I went up and looked it up. <laughs> that song was in 81. And there's like Boogie Oogie Oogie, September, Boogie mm-hmm. Wonderland, and Get Down On It are all after this movie is supposedly coming out. Right. Why? I mean, they picked the timeline. Why can't you get the music right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And and most people, I didn't, I deem it, I missed that too. So there you go. I mean, that's a that's the thing that the music nerds in us totally get um, yeah, affected by that. And we talked about that, you know, when when I was on your show for uh, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, they totally yeah. they got the timeline totally wrong on that one. And that one they need to get right because they are literally talking about the band and its music. So uh, yeah, no, I'm totally with you. Yeah, and I'm assuming what happens is. You know, you, you've got a plot, you've got a scene. Somebody says, Hey, we need some music to this scene. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes up with the music director goes, sounds great. And nobody's doing any research. That is four years after this movie supposedly is set. Right. Right. And they do hire people just for continuity purposes. And so they must've missed it or didn't care. Like you said, like there's like, ah, this song fits, or maybe they could only get the rights to certain songs. You know, that also factors in. Oh yeah, that's, that's true. And that's why I was kind of confused. Even at the end of the movie, I'm like, okay, was that supposed to be a spoof? Mm-hmm. Was that supposed to be like a lethal weapon type thing? Cause lethal weapons, not really a spoof. So I wasn't too sure if, if they were kind of being serious or if they were not being serious. Right. And, and definitely again, the, the writer and director, um, the writer of lethal weapons is, is the director for this. So yeah, there's definitely a connection. You can, you can yeah. tell, um, any other criticisms that you came away from it? Uh, no, it was really the music and then the whole, the car driving itself and Gosling hallucinating. I I quite get that. I (laughs) like, there was parts of this movie where it was like, okay, somebody wrote that scene. It doesn't fit anywhere. So you just kind of threw it here. Right. That's a good call. I think that happens sometimes with with films. It's like, okay, we really like this scene, but we don't want to get rid of it. So, yeah. And I'll tell you again, it is dry comedy, right? But there's a, there's a couple of pieces for example, um, the bartender says something like, had their balls removed. What, what's that called? And Crow says, marriage. I <laughs> am dying. And everybody watching with me is like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, rewind that. You didn't get that? Rewind it. Right? So there's there's some really cool one-liners that are kind of lost in the movie because it's almost not emphasized. Like, they didn't wait the extra two seconds for you to get it, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And maybe yeah, that's, and- the, that's what they were trying for. I don't know. I, I definitely, I, I, yeah, I think that you're right about that. You know, even like you remember in the beginning where Gosling's trying to break into the bar at the end or not the end, but it went after hours and he punches open the glass yeah. and he slices open his wrist. I mean, even that's kind of downplayed and it's yeah. I'm like, how stupid is he? He could have killed himself, you know, by puncturing his artery. Yeah. It's just, uh, I, I like it when it's in there because these are like we, we had talked before on other movies about mm-hmm. when you watch it, do you find new stuff, new stuff? I keep finding new stuff in here. Yeah. And that's a sign of a good movie. I, I think those, when you have those Easter eggs that aren't necessarily supposed to be Easter eggs, that's, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. So <laughs> I, Russell even says in the, uh, when he's doing the, the narration, mm-hmm. marriages, buying a house for someone you hate. Like yeah. that's a great line. It is. That should be on t-shirts. <laughs> well, you can you can do it. Uh, yeah, say, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on my second marriage already, dude. I don't need no help. There you go. <laughs> well, on that note, we'll leave it at that. And uh, so, you definitely re- would recommend this movie. Oh yeah, definitely. You got to see it at least once. Hell, it's I don't know if it's made it to like the normal cable channels, and they kind of cut some of this stuff out. But it's always on the pay channels. There's no way. There's no way around that. If you have Xfinity and you have like HBO, it's free. 
It's going to be around. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, when I saw, I, I think I got it on Netflix originally. And then when I saw it, I'm like, I'm going to buy this because I, I want to watch this over and over again. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you as always, Sonny. Glad to be on. Thanks for the invite. All right, we are back with definitely a nice guy, and that is Bill Roseberry, who is uh, one of my favorite guests, and we always have a good time talking. Welcome back, Bill. What's going on, Brian? <laughs> so I, I always ask, you know, the the guests this question, and this one's a little different because it's a it's a relatively uh, recent film, came out in 2016. Uh, did you see this in the theater, or was this, uh, you know, cable or a rental? Like, how did you discover the nice guys? No, this was, um, you know, I have. Direct TV um, okay. for my service, and I'll wait around till I get free HBO or or Showtime or whatever for a while, and I'll DVR just a crap load of stuff that I've never seen. Okay, uh, older movies, newer movies, as much as I can find, and then I'll watch them as I get a chance. And that's how I came across the Nice Guys. The Nice Guys was one that I'd wanted to see for a while. I I was interested in it when I saw it. Um, come out because i'm a huge russell crowe fan have okay. been for years and i really like ryan gosling a lot yeah. too i mean even even i mean let me i even like the notebook i even like i even like the notebook with ryan gosling but, that's you know perfectly I mean? okay yeah and i mean you know like drive was a f- phenomenal movie with ryan gosling he's done a lot of cool stuff you know and uh i just thought him and russell crowe together you know would be intriguing is a pi duo like that and and it definitely was they were phenomenal together yeah and that was my next question what 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 intrigued you and i think that what intrigued me definitely was kind of the throwback vibe of the the private eye and the um kind of like the the tough guy the enforcer which russell crowe played played really well and i think he either he's wearing a bodysuit or some padding or not because it looked like he gained some weight for this role he did gain some weight for this role he's he said that he wanted to gain some weight for the role, so he looked like more of a bruiser type for a fighter because uh, he, he just thought it looked better for, for that character to, to be a little heavier. So he put on some weight. Um, and he also has said that this was one of the movies that he's done that he wishes there would be a sequel to it. Absolutely. He I, yeah. loved it. I was going to get into that because I think this this lends itself to that because they work uh, Gosling and, and Crow work extremely well together. Uh, I don't think it made enough money, unfortunately, at the box office to, no. to warn a, another one. But I guess there was talk about making possibly a, a TV spinoff, which would be kind of interesting. Well, I guess from what I've read is originally it was was going to be a television series mm-hmm. and then got uh, spun into a movie. So um, which would have been interesting. Um, sure. You know. It would have been interesting on maybe like maybe not on on regular primetime television. I would have liked to have rather seen it maybe like on an FX or sure. or an HBO or Showtime or on a streaming service than a, than you know primetime show. I think it you know it's a little bit darker and grittier and and you know I mean obviously the language and everything it it, it added to all of it. What what I thought when I watched this movie, mm-hmm. see what you think here. Sure, I thought it was like forty eight hours meets the Maltese Falcon. Uh-huh. No, that's a good call. Type setup. I, I I mean it's it's really I think you know it is such a throwback movie and I think that's probably why it didn't do as well at the box office. But I mean, man, it it's so well done and Gosling is amazing in it because he's such a putz. Yes, I mean, this is. is a guy who's a leading man. He's the guy that you would expect to be, you know, he's a tough guy and a, a hunk and all the girls. And he's a complete fuck up in this movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's a complete putz. And, you know, Russell Crowe's the guy who's the, the tough guy and has to bail him out of trouble all the time. I mean, from the opening scene where he's trying to break into that that uh, <laughs> uh, building his and hand. he cuts his <laughs> hand open and has... Oh my God! He's like, oh, that's a lot of blood. Yeah. And he ends up in the hospital, and yep. yeah, oh, yeah. His I, daughter, his daughter is actually smarter than he is, and she's a great character. Oh, she was great too. I loved the part. I loved the daughter too. That 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 uh, that part of it. That was that was a cool uh, cool twist to the movie too. So, I one of my favorite lines was when they're on the um, they're on the elevator. It was when when they first run into John Boy mm-hmm. at the hotel and. They're riding up, and Ryan Gosling is kind of him, and he says, he says, a Munich, a Munich, that's a guy with no testicles. 
And Russell Crowe Russell Crow says, no, Munich, that's a eunuch. Munich is a city in Germany. And then Ryan Gosling doesn't even skip a beat. He just looks at him. You know, Hitler only had one ball. <laughs> it was just shit like that that just cracked me up. It was so ignorant. Or when his daughters, at the, when they go to that party and, and she's like, uh, wow, dad, you know, she sneaks there in the trunk and they get out and she's like, wow, dad, there's a lot of whores here and stuff. <laughs> it's like, hey, don't say that. What have I told you about that? <laughs> Just well, that, say there are a lot of whores here. Don't say and stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the great, that's the writing of uh, Shane Black, who, of course, wrote right. the uh, all the Lethal Weapon movies, which I um, I missed. I mean, granted, I mean, those, those are the kind of the, there's your 48 hours that 48 hours eventually evolved into those kind of buddy cop uh, type type films and uh, yeah I I miss film I miss the PI you know uh, you know I I grew up on Rockford Files and Magnum PI and guys like that so I don't understand why this wouldn't do well especially with two top draw actors you know oh and I mean and obviously Shane Black has has done some phenomenal stuff over the years I mean actually you know creating Murtaugh and Riggs like you'd mentioned for Lethal Weapon you know yep. he wrote. And directed the last Predators movie, um, yep. which was great, and and I think did fairly well. Uh, yep. Um, and Iron Man done, Three. Uh, yeah, Iron Man Three, which was actually I think the weakest Iron Man movie. I didn't realize he had done that one. I I don't like Iron Man Three, unfortunately. Oh, uh, okay. I don't. Uh, like then an underrated one is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, that's not a bad bad film either. Um, you know, he had done. Um, uh, Obviously, he was in Predator uh, years ago, the original one, yeah. um, as an actor. And then, um, you know, he did Last Action Hero, which I think is uh, an underrated movie. He wrote mm -hmm. the the screenplay for that, I believe. So, yeah, I mean, Shane Black's been around and done some stuff. And he did a phenomenal job with, with this movie, for sure. And then some of the, the you know, supporting cast, and it was great, too. You got Keith David. I've always oh, loved love Keith David. David. Yep. Yeah, he's I mean, from going all the way back to Platoon or Platoon or They Live. I mean, Keith David's uh, Men at Work. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Keith David's amazing character actor and um, great. I mean, voice. it was cool seeing him. And then, and then, uh, yeah, you had Kim Kim Basinger's in it. Yep. Um, you know, so yeah, it was. It had some some uh, really cool casting too. So uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Oh, another thing you mentioned, the Rockford Files. I didn't realize yeah. they. The Yellow Pages ad that they <laughs> yeah. took out is uh -huh. almost exactly a copy of what Jim Rockford had in the Rockford. I read yeah. that today in a in a trivia thing for it. I was looking at some things and and I didn't even think about it. So I said, I said, hell yeah, it was. It was the exact same ad. Well, that's what interesting. I, that's why the 70s were great. And I love that they kind of throw back to the 70s. And maybe that's why I didn't do as well. Maybe people don't have as much nostalgia for the 70s like they do the uh, uh, the 60s and the 50s, but or even the 80s at this point. Um, yeah, because they're just I, I think it's uh, they could go a little bit further and then kind of go with the seediness of the of the mid to late 70s, uh, you know, with the disco era and things like that. And they did. I thought that was good. Yeah. I mean, what was it? I think it was. Based in 1978, Los Angeles. Yeah, setting for it, which I thought was was great. You know, kind of the you know you had like you said the disco going on and yep. the porn industry because you're in L.A., which yep. it was based around. And and that's another part where Ryan Gosling like. So let me get this straight: you created a porno movie where the plot is the important part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a porno she kept saying <laughs> well we might as well we'll get in without giving stuff away did you like the plot did you like where it went and uh there's some cool twists towards the end but are so did you care as much about the plot or, or was it the action that kind of kind of kept you interested oh no the plot kept me interested too because okay. there were some twists to it and trying to figure out where they were fi figure out what was going on and you know there were some they got a they got turned in a lot of different directions and it was funny. It was, it really was Ryan Gosling. That was the one that kind of figured things out though. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even though he was the one that was usually screwing stuff up, he eventually oh, yeah. kind of figured some of the things out. So yeah, no, I, I, uh, I really liked the plot. I like the, the dialogue. I'm a big dialogue person. It's why I'm probably a big Quentin Tarantino fan. And, oh yeah. Um, I, Shane Black, writes dialogue very well too and 
I thought uh, the dialogue was great in it. Um, the action was was phenomenal, and the and the the plot was great too. Yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, that's a can't miss because because uh, most action, not most action movies, a lot of action movies, they don't care about the dialogue that much. I mean, you watch a Marvel movie, I, I, are any of the lines super like memorable? Not usually. I mean, maybe they'll do, they'll have a, like nice little quip here and there, but. Um, yeah, it's not the back and forth between Thor and, and, uh, you know, another guy that's really going to, to stand out. They're going to remember all the CGA stuff. And this one, it's, it's, it's definitely the throwback to lethal weapon. Right, right. Yeah, it, it is. It, lethal weapon's another good one that you could throw in there. Starsky and Hutch. I see a little bit of that in there. Sure. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, uh, it was really kind of an ode to those old cop buddy series and, and, and movies, you know, and then with a with a little film noir noir background, yeah, too, stuff like a like, neo noir, yeah, right, yeah, stuff like uh, Maltese Falcon. Like I said, you know, the the way it started out, that's what that reminded me of, where they're kind of narrating their own backgrounds to start the movie. Yeah, and, like a Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade, right? Yeah, yep, yep. absolutely. And uh, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of neo noir to it too. I, I see a little Chinatown in it for the darkness. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so you would definitely recommend this, and this for me, this is one of the the better movies I've seen the last you know five or six years. Oh, absolutely! I recommend it. I showed it to Mike uh, a while back. He had not seen it; he didn't know anything about it, and he loved it. So I showed it to my parents, and they loved it. They they laughed their asses off. I mean, I I would love to see a sequel to this movie. I don't yeah. know if we ever will, like you said, because it it's all about making money, and it yep. really did. But I I really believe this is going to become a cult classic. Over I time. agree people are yeah. going to really go back to yeah yeah it'd been interesting if this came out in the in the 80s or maybe the early 90s if it would have done a lot better or if maybe like you said maybe it would have developed a new kind of following on cable um you know there are a lot of movies like that that we that we talk about often that uh, did do well at the box office but they they still hang around because of uh you know rentals and and streaming right and i actually think even if it would have came out maybe early 2000s early to mid 2000s mm-hmm. it would have been a much bigger hit that's possible coming, coming out. I would have come out 2016. Is that yeah. correct? Yep. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's just a different, different time right now. I don't know. You know, and the movies are, I feel like so hit and miss anymore. Yep. I, I don't see as many good ones as I used to, you know, I definitely mean, not. And as there are, yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. And we're, as we're recording this, I mean, this is 2021 as we're recording this and, uh, They've already announced that, you know, Warner Brothers is going to release all of their, you know, I think 12 or 13 films on HBO Max. And so that's uh, uh, that's totally different than what it used to be like. And uh, and if nobody's going to go to the theater and they're just going to release some like, you know, cattle, uh, you are going to have a lot of sleepers just kind of fall by the wayside. Right. You mentioned that. I mean, Christmas Day, my girlfriend and I went to my parents and yep. and spent the day with them. And she was like, I'm going to go home you know, tonight. And I said, all right, I'm just going to come back, come back to the house. And, and, uh, I watched, watched wonder woman. Right. You know, I mean, it released that day and, and, uh, got HBO max and watched it, uh, sitting on my couch. Yeah. The day it released. I mean, it was cool. I really, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a well done movie, but you know, I mean, it was just kind of bizarre to be able to sit there and watch it on my couch like that. It's just times are changing. And I think there's, going to be a lot of stuff from this COVID that's going to make it, you know, change from, I think there's going to be a lot more release at home type stuff than, than going less, to the movie, theater, less movie theater yeah, stuff. They're going to, they're going to place all their bets on, um, you know, superhero movies and unfortunately sequels, which is where they've been going anyway, which is too bad. I hope if anything good comes out of this, there's more drive-ins because uh, I miss the drive-in. Right, we have several around here, and okay. I, I need—I haven't gotten to one in a while, but I need to. I'm sure you have a lot more where you're at. No, no, no? There's, there's basically one left that's by me, and really, that's it. Yeah, so I'm hoping maybe they they kind of revitalize that because hmm. that's the epitome of social distancing. So, <laughs> right, right, yeah, we have them, but I just figured with the, the weather being year round, I mean, you know how the Midwest is right now. It's true, true, cold, cold as hell. They're not. Uh, you know, drive-ins aren't even really open right now. It was snowing and icing yesterday. Here, right. So. Right. So, yeah, um, I, I always enjoyed that when I was a kid. But, yeah, it take it is it is weird, like you said, watching because Wonder Woman was a movie I would have went to the show to see. Sure. 
I'm watching it on my couch, you know. And yeah. I and I don't know, just all all changing. And unfortunately, I think the nice guys is a movie that got kind of caught up in the changing of times. I think, like I said, if it would have come out 15 years earlier, it would have been really popular. I think. I agree. And uh, the good thing about this, I think, a lot of people have been able to because there's less new movies coming out. You can go back and revisit the ones you missed, and I think that's that's what I'm trying to do with the podcast. So I'm hoping people will go. And they're like, oh, I'm not going to see a new movie. Let me go revisit something I missed. So hopefully the nice guy is, is one of them. And I think that's a good good one to revisit if you haven't seen it. Yep, absolutely. Well, thank you as always, Bill. It's always been a lot of fun. And I know you're going to be back on pretty soon. Yeah, no problem, man. I love it. I love doing it. I appreciate you having me on every time. Anytime. Thank you, buddy. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.